So welcome everybody to the next episode of the Trauma and Healing podcast. Today I have the pleasure of talking to journalist, lecturer and author Leona O'Neill. Leona is a highly respected journalist, is known for her tenacity, her compassion, her ability to tell powerful stories that resonate with her readers. She has a deep commitment to social justice. She has used her platform as a journalist to shed light on issues that matter the most to the people of Northern Ireland. Over the course of her career, she has covered a wide wide range of topics, including politics, crime, health and education. She is particularly passionate about issues that affect the vulnerable. She's a tireless advocate for victims of domestic violence, sexual abuse and other forms of trauma. Leona has now become a passionate advocate for promoting safety in journalism and improving mental health within newsrooms. As now head of undergraduates in Ulster University, Leona plays a crucial role in shaping the future of journalism by educating and mentoring the next generation of journalists. Welcome, Leona. Thank you so much for coming along today. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Clodagh. Yeah, it's nearly Friday. So, yeah, you're nearly there. Not Monday, and it's nearly Friday. So yeah, I'm doing good. Yeah, good, good. Okay, so for people listening that are interested and wanting to know, how did you first get into journalism? What inspired you to pursue pursue it as a career? I always wanted to be a journalist from when I was a little girl. I suppose my dad was very heavily involved in the civil rights movement here in Northern Ireland. He was a history teacher. And he had the funny thing of being in the history books that he was actually teaching from. And so he, he was really involved and loved the news. The news was constantly on in our house when we were growing up, really heavily involved in, you know, what was happening. Always wanted to know what was happening. We were growing up, obviously, in the Troubles. So the news at that time was on every six o'clock in the evening. And it was usually really, really grim, but dad would have sat in front of it and and watched it and just absorbed every political show and all that type of stuff. And I just remember watching it with him, just watching the news when we were growing up and seeing the likes of Kate Eady, you know, the reporter, the very famous English reporter, Kate Eady, up in the bog side, not that far from where we were, reporting from a war zone. And just thinking, gee, that just looks like a really exciting job. I love that. And a, a particular woman can do that job as well. Yeah. It's not it's quite a mix. you see it. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you can't be what you can't see, I suppose, is the, the saying. So yeah. I really, I just, I just love that side of things, the excitement of it being right in the middle of the action. And that stayed, that hunger as well stayed with me. I was always very curious, always very nosy person. I always wanted to hear what the, you know, what was happening. And and I love taking things apart. You know, it was probably my dad, as I say, taught me, taught me that, you know, getting a set of facts and sort of putting them together and figuring out your own opinion of it, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, that's what, it, and that stayed with me all through my teen years. And I suppose when you're growing up alongside the troubles and the news is happening on your doorstep every day of the week. And you want to figure out what's happening and who are the players in this situation. And mm-hmm. that that kind of fed into it as well. And I suppose, yeah, that's that that's really what it was. And, and that never left me. So I just, as soon as I could, I was way off the journalism school in Belfast and just and getting out there and doing the job. And I just absolutely loved it. It was a career I absolutely loved. I imagine, you know, your description, you know, of your dad taking in all the news and trying to get all the facts to get his own opinion on what was happening. Because I imagine... You know, as it is today, you're told a lot of things. Some are truth, some are half truth, some are just complete lies, depending on what your sources are. That I, I have this image of the like conversations going back and forth, and you, as this tiny kid, you know, being asked to critically assess things. You know, and what a wonderful yeah. base that was then to go into journalism school. Yeah, 100%. I mean, my, my dad has gone now about 12, 12 years, 13 years now. And we would have often, even growing up in our in our house, you know, because my dad was so socially aware and aware of politics and aware of history. And it wasn't just, we were not the type of family that could just sort of look away from things and what do, that doesn't bother me or that's not on my doorstep, so I don't care about it. It would always make us think about how things impacted people. How did this situation here impact on the people around it? 
or even sort of you know sometimes when when you're seeing stuff in the news as well and you're, you're looking at really horrific kind of things that are happening perhaps in, in, on the six o'clock news and they're just on your doorstep and dad would always say look at the people who are helping look at the people who are running towards that look at the ambulance workers and look at the many people that are helping so critically thinking things yeah taking things apart 100 percent and putting place putting things in their place in history context 100% as well and putting context on things and not just getting one side of the story that always said that as well you know if there's a if there's a conflict if there's a conflict even within the family and brothers and sisters fighting when they were kids or whatever get both sides who's nobody's in the right and in the wrong and try and find yeah. a resolution to that but yeah it was a really good it was a really good teacher he was a history teacher but he's also a really good teacher of us you know growing yeah. up there a lot of lessons there that's you know, I would still keep keep with me. It sounds it sounds like it was precious when you think about it now. Yeah. So okay, so that stands to you then. So I wanted to ask you. So you you've written a book in 2022. You you co-edited a book, Breaking Trauma in the Newsroom, which featured accounts from some of the most respected journalists in the UK and Ireland. And in the book, you gave your own account as a journalist and your experiences of trauma in the industry. Now, I, I've read the book and, and it really opened my eyes. Actually, you opened my eyes to, I didn't, I didn't see journalism through the eyes of the journalist. I just saw it through the events that I was being told, if, if that yeah. makes sense. So can you tell me what has witnessing the news, how has it affected you, you know, yeah, so I wrote that book. I, I put that book together after I witnessed the murder of Lear McKee. So she's a journalist here from Northern Ireland. She was shot dead at a riot in 2019. And I was there that night. I was covering the, the, the riot beforehand for the Belfast Telegraph. And I was standing beside her when she was shot dead. A dissident Republican gunman just fired up the street at, towards us and towards police vehicles and just indiscriminately and... I heard the bullets ripping past the air, you know, beside my head. And I can still sometimes hear their, the noise that they made now. And she was hit and she fell and we tried to help her. And fortunately, she died. And that was a really traumatic experience to experience. And it stayed with me for a long time still. I don't think I'll ever, you know, get some of the images mm-hmm. out of my head from that night. But afterwards, I was harassed by conspiracy theorists who said it was a false flag and and local people who support the people who murdered her and just it was a really really horrific experience the the whole thing and it really broke me and that's probably why it's called breaking trauma in the newsroom and yeah so that but I've been to a lot of counseling since actually Flora and three and a half years after that incident I still couldn't talk about it without getting upset and I realized I went through CBT recently actually it was really really good I went through it was there in November of last year Mm-hmm. and it made me realize it wasn't just one incident that that kind of tipped me over the edge it was kind yeah. of it was a culmination of and I think I was talking to you as well you know about this sort of like this build-up mm-hmm. of layer static load it's called it's what it's called allostatic load it's where those you know it's death by a thousand paper cuts you know? yeah so it's a culmination of sort of traumatic stories and tragedies and, and all the things that I covered over the years that kind of just built up and they were never processed in the newsroom and I realized I was just when we're doing CBT that sort of, you know, that 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 was what it was. And it wasn't just the one sort of thing. And I find it fascinating in this kind of marrying of psychology and journalism together that I have done over the last couple of years, mm-hmm. leaning on the, you know, experts like yourself and other people as well. It's really opened my eyes. And you say you open your eyes to kind of what journalists kind of go through. It's, mm-hmm. it's really opened my eyes to what we did go through and that the, yeah. the newsroom's a really dysfunctional place. Mm-hmm. It doesn't lend itself very well to good mental health. So that's that that's whole process of, of doing that book and bringing together, I think there's 16 or 17 journalists in there, very well-known journalists in there, talking about how they broke the news and the news broke them and the different things yeah. that impacted on them. And it's not war zones. It's not kind of big dramatic things that that have happened sometimes it's just like a murder case or an inquest or a child's murder or something that just lands on them yeah and sticks with them and just really just you know tears at their soul because we're only human beings we're not robots journalists and sometimes I think journalists themselves think that their robots are somehow superhuman and none of this stuff will land on them so yeah it set me off on a a bit of of a path I suppose yeah so this path at the moment is the healing path, is it? 
Yeah, definitely. As it's a healing path for me, I suppose. Excuse me, but I suppose. I couldn't sleep for a long time. I had real problems sleeping. I know it was a trauma response now. I didn't know what it was at the time. I just thought I had insomnia because I suppose when you're coming from a journalistic perspective, you, you long think there's a historic kind of thing that you think that nothing can touch you. All journalists are the same. All of them are the same. Nothing can. It's a culture within the newsroom, it seems. Yeah. yeah. It's 100% a culture within newsrooms nothing can touch me and if something does there's something wrong with me or I'm too weak for this job or I should get out of this job and do something else and I really thought like that I genuinely did even after seeing someone being murdered I went to work the next day I went to work the next day after seeing someone being murdered and I carried on for a year and I worked myself under the ground because I suppose whenever I stopped working and I tried to sleep I the images of that night would come back and haunt me you know and but I thought that's what you're supposed to do as a journalist you're not you're not supposed to let anything touch you you're Mm. not supposed to let anything bother you you're supposed to just keep going and keep going and keep going and yeah so I am on this journey now and I suppose when you're in a newsroom you can't sort of admit a lot of people find fear and admitting that there's something wrong with them they Mm. think that if I say I was really impacted by that story. Then someone will take me off that job and put me onto somewhere, you know, maybe sport or something else. It seems as, less. Yeah, seems less kind of traumatic. And if that's your your job and what you're good at and stuff like that, you don't want to be taken away from that. So there's a there's a sort of multi layered fear there. And I'm out of the newsroom now. I'm working in academia and I'm guiding new journalists into the field. So I felt in a safe place. Firstly, I felt in a safe place that I could actually talk about this without fear of losing my job or fear of being put on somewhere else. Or, But also it's been a real learning curve for me because when I look back at some of the stories that I covered, really horrific stories. I mean, I'm talking about, you know, ones where... You know, some Saturday, a family of five are killed in some kind of accident, children and everything. Mm-hmm. And covering that all day and listen to the horrific details and the harrowing reports of the eyewitnesses and the people that tried to save them or whatever. And then coming back to your house and trying to be normal, trying to be a normal, you know. It's, and you have this record telling you you're not <laughs> supposed to feel anything about what you've just witnessed. No. You know, and it's such a human response to feel empathy, compassion, pain for another human having to go through that. And you're not supposed to feel that. You're supposed to, in one way, you're supposed to feel that because you want to be human and you have to tell a human story. But in other ways, you're not supposed to feel that because it's such a confusing mess, isn't it? I wonder. It's almost like you need to have a switch. It's like the spigot needs to be turned off. You've turned it on enough to tell the story and now you need to be able to turn it off. But that's just not how humans work. Not how humans work at all. And I I do get the switching it on when you go out. What I used to do, if I left my doorstep and going to do a story, I would put the emotional barriers would go up and they would be protecting me from anything from landing Mm. on me. But I would make sure that I was human enough that I was able to tell that story I'd let just the just a little bit in that I was able to tell that story but I think it's it it opens up an interesting thing these days there have been certain cases in the news recently where journalists have been criticized for not being for being cold cruel heartless the headlines are heartless the stories are heartless all that kind of stuff and when I look at it I look at it from a journalistic perspective this is the world over not just here in, Mm. in Ireland but I look at it from a journalistic perspective. Those journalists are probably shut down emotionally because they don't want any of that stuff they going to. on. They yeah. have to. And particularly if they're covering a story that maybe lasts for 10, 10 days, 20 days, three weeks, a month or whatever, and they're engrossed in that and they're consumed by that every single day and the details. And That's very real. It's not an abstract concept. Yeah. You know, you, you, I'm just thinking, you know, when you watch this movie or you read that book and it's really intense and it's, you know, maybe psychologically messing with you you get to put it down and it's a story yeah. as in somebody has written a fiction or anything like that but a journalist has to go through that process in a very exactly. real way facing the very real people that have been hurt by it exactly and then they have to leave that and go home and try and be a normal human being or go back into a newsroom which is not supportive which is not comforting environment which is not listen that was an awful story you covered are you okay it's yeah. on to the next story, on to the next one. We're, we're, the deadline for that one is two hours time. You need to get on it. So it, it's a really, a really damaging kind of dysfunctional world, I suppose. And I don't think people understand. As you say, 
you know, you're leaning under these stories. If journalists walk into these really harrowing incidents and they're they're absorbing all this grief from the bereaved and the bereft and 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 they're also absorbing perhaps like abuse online or maybe there's hostility in person. And, and then they have their own personal life, by the way. Yeah. I know Anything that's happening in their life. Yeah. And they're expected to just be these absolute immune from anything superhuman machines they are and the work the people who are the worst at thinking that are journalists themselves i thought that i thought that Mm. myself a week after seeing someone being murdered i was at the funeral of the person that i saw murdered and you know a month later i was flat out at work i didn't take i didn't even take a day off i couldn't sleep couldn't sleep for a full year and i got up and went to work and i was the worst person at disregarding my own well-being because everybody i suppose in newsrooms disregards it anyway we're not worth yeah. sympathy we're not worth caring for it's that's a kind of that's a way that it. one of the things that stuck out when i was reading your story in the book was you sitting in the car you had come home and you were unable to go, get out of the car and go into the house yeah i find that i don't know why that was the heartbreaking moment for me because that's yeah. where had somebody been able to meet you had that been able to get you know crack through going this is what just happened to you yeah. it's okay to not go in the house or it's okay to not want mm. to go into the house or feeling what you're feeling you know putting the context as you say around the story of what happened to you as the witness of, the, of what just happened yeah. not the journalist telling the story because in 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 writing it that's what you were doing you were doing the the phone interviews I think it was yeah I was sitting outside doing phone interviews and that was the thing you were talking about there the emotional barrier yeah. I thought that emotional barrier would save me. It didn't. It completely disintegrated. But I thought I, you know, it was not only witnessing someone being murdered, as I said, I heard the bullets wasn't past my head. They were so close. I heard, like, you know, wishing past my head. I could have been hit with one of those as well. I could have, during my, doing my job, not come back to my children. And that really, and then going in and seeing them sleeping on their beds, knowing that maybe an hour or two beforehand, their lives could have just been completely destroyed because some idiot fired a gun up the street in a, at a riot. And that really, I, I couldn't get out of the car. I didn't want to get out of reporter mode. In reporter mode, yes, you're, you're safe. Nothing touches you. You're kind of dis, almost distant from the story. It doesn't, nothing lands on you. But in a case like that, I mean, I remember when you I was a story. Yeah, you're, you're you're part of it, I suppose. But I remember I was filming bits and pieces of the of the riot and stuff like that. And before Lear was hit, I I went out of reporter mode. I had my phone when I was phoning an ambulance. I was talking to the ambulance. I had no thought of I need to video this. I need to record this. I need to interview people. I went from reporter to human being, and sort mm. of if that was someone that I loved, I would want I would want them of to be course. helped. Yeah. You know, and it was that kind of confusing sort of thing. And in fact, afterwards, in the weeks afterwards, there was one very well-known reporter, veteran reporter, I suppose, asked me, "Why didn't you film that? That was the, that would have been that was the best bit. That was a, that was news, and you really let the side down by not filming that." And I just thought, like, oh gosh, I must have. I, I it was such a confusing time, but I remember being really hurt by that sort of like. I was just a human being helping another human being who was who was in bad shape. And of course, I'm not going to film it. Of course, I'm going to phone an ambulance and get them help. The story's not the most important thing there. The story's not the most important thing ever. Helping someone who's hurt is, you know, top priority. Yeah, it shows the protection there of I have to be that far removed from what's happening even in front of me. You can't be, but you can't be yeah, so know, far removed when it's happening right in front of you. It's just... Your your human instincts kick, and for some people they do. For other yeah. people, perhaps they don't. But that's not the type of person that that I am. So, yeah, it's a, it's a very weird world. It's an ongoing process. It's a difficult and ongoing process dealing with any trauma, no matter what happens to us in our lives. Can you share some of the ways that you have coped, or what has helped you in processing your experiences? Yeah, to be honest with you, I didn't cope very well for the first year. Not well at all. All I did was, I suppose, I had PTSD and I didn't realise I had PTSD. But whenever, I suppose, some of the PTSD responses, when I looked them up, I I, I just turned into a workaholic. I worked day and night, all weekend. Any work coming up at all, I took it because I didn't want to, I didn't want to sit and think about stuff. stuff. 
So I just, I didn't want to stop because when you stop, the images will come back. So some people lean on the drugs and alcohol and dangerous behavior, whatever. I just lent into my work and I just exhausted myself. I worked to the point of exhaustion because I couldn't sleep as well. And I, I just was in denial, you know, things, things can't impact on me. I'm a reporter. I've been a reporter 20 years. Things can't, you know, nothing's going to impact on me. So I kept going and I really was not well. I really had panic attacks every single day. My anxiety was absolutely through the roof to the point where I was hyperventilating in my car at times whenever I was going out to do jobs. Or, you know, I remember one particular time I was sitting in the car and there was something happening up the street and a, a police land drove past me with the sirens on, the same sirens that they, they'd heard that, that night. And I, I don't know what happened. I just started hyperventilating. It was just a trauma response. It just yeah. brought me straight back to that point. So I didn't handle it well at all. And then I suppose a lockdown came and mm-hmm. everything stopped and everything was quiet. And I had to sit with that. I had to sit with those images. And I, I had awful, awful nightmares for about a year and a half. But I just had to sit with it and during lockdown. And I think it was that point that I thought, this is not normal. This is not a normal thing that a person doesn't sleep for more than two hours a night or that a person wakes up 20 times a night gasping for breath, thinking someone's going to kill them or that a person can't go out, out into even the supermarket without having a panic attack or thinking everybody means them harm. So in actual fact, it is a normal response. Well, it is a normal response when you've been traumatized. But I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I didn't. It's I not thought, an okay response to go <laughs> on your own without context again. Yeah. But then, so I, I, I sought help then. I just reached out. There was, and I, I found it very difficult to get help, actually, because when, obviously we're in the middle of a lockdown. There's more important yeah. things people were doing. So I reached out to some journalism charities and I said, listen, I, I don't know. Do you do this type of, do you deal with people who have dealt or have had these type of experiences? And one particular one got me, got me set up with some counselling with a, a, a person who deals a lot with journalists who were in war zones and stuff like that. And she got me through just talking to her online. We're all still in lockdown, talking to her, mm. just talking because mm. I couldn't talk about it. Anybody that even brought it up to me in that year and a half, I couldn't even speak about it. I couldn't even look at that girl's face on the paper. Anything that came on the news, I switched it straight over. I didn't want anything at all. I didn't even want the, even the word, even the girl's name. Didn't want to have see it or see her name or anything. And that's a terrible thing. It just hurt anytime that I, uh, that I yeah. saw her, or her face or her name or anything like that. So talking about it, being able to talk about it. And to be honest, I cried an awful lot in those mm-hmm. counseling sessions. And I got, I suppose, crying is healing. That's a, yeah. one thing that, that, that people have, have kind of said. I... I had to deal with it a lot myself. You know, the doctors were not available, I suppose, for for these type of things. And Gosh, it's quite isolated again. It was isolated, yeah. Yeah. But I just, I lent into yoga. I mean, I absolutely love yoga. And I found found that it really centered me. Mm -hmm. I did, I looked things up, meditation, crystals. I wear crystals around my neck and and they ground me. They're probably, it's probably a lot of woo-woo, but I kind of, I... Whatever works for you. Whatever works, exactly. Yeah. And I I talked, I talked to people, I talked to other journalists. And in fact, the book Breaking Trauma in the Newsroom, that really helped. I found a tribe of people. Yeah, who, just, yeah. yeah they, had a, they had a similar experience. Not similar, but, you know, in different sort of ways. But they had the similar pain and they had the similar kind of fear about talking about it. And they had the similar kind of fear about showing their vulnerabilities. And we all did it together. And I thought that was brilliant. I thought that was that really helped me and kind of and just talking. And I think once I find my voice, I haven't shut up about it now. You know, the sort of the we need to help our journalists. We need to get better at this. At once I got my voice back because I suppose I before this happened, I was the most confident person in the world. And I totally this incident and this experience, this whole experience totally destroyed me, destroyed my confidence in myself and in, in, in just in, in life in general. And really broke me down to the very lowest level that you could possibly be as a human being, I suppose. And there's only one way to go from rock bottom mm. and that's up. And that's kind of, I've been climbing my way up ever since. But yeah, just talking, I think, is probably the, the most, the best advice. Talk to people because other people will probably have experiences not exactly the same, but similar to yours. And they might have mm. ways to, to help. Talking, yeah. yoga, meditation. 
and just kids my kids and to myself with beautiful comforting things comfortable things familiar things and sort of leaning on the and those kind of things so yeah. going back into safety because it really yeah. was not safe at that time yeah. what your experience was was really you know it was life-threatening and a life was yeah. lost so having to come back in your body having to come back into that safety needing to come back into that safety yeah and it was not only that but it was I was getting death threats too so yeah in my home and so my home wasn't safe so there was no place of safety and then lockdown in a house that is under threat from paramilitaries too wasn't you know it it just it wasn't fun times at all there was zero zero positive stuff that I could I could look back apart well no I had to say that now because I suppose when something really terrible happens you know it makes you stronger it makes you more resilient and at this stage I suppose I'm made of titanium and I know that my family haven't got my back and we're all very strong together and we've all grown together through this as well because it was a nightmare trying to navigate through but we did and that's and that's made us what we we are today we're a very strong unit Okay, so then the question being, you know, do you believe that healing is possible? And if so, what does that look like for you? Because every, everybody is different. You know, healing has to be your own sense Yeah, I do think that healing is possible. I genuinely do. I don't think I would have been able to heal myself without the help of professionals, though. I genuinely don't think that. I know that, and I, I, I think that it was a combination of me being ready to heal and them being willing to help me that really particularly this last six months or so doing cbt i think that was just that was life-changing for me that cbt program it made me kind of sit with my pain and the the therapist sat with me through that entire process and it was really really hard but when i came out the other side of it i felt like i genuinely feel like a different person i feel like the person that was four years ago was that person and that whatever she was journalist and what have you I feel like a different person now and I feel kind of like not that this happened for a reason because it was an awful awful experience but I have healing has allowed me to see that I I need to do something I need to find some light in this horrible sort of darkness that that I am kind of emerging from and use it as fuel to help other people and I think that's part of my healing healing for me and I don't know maybe it's just the type of person I am wouldn't be me sitting doing yoga and just keeping it all to myself if I have some kind of experience that I that I can use to help other people and help make the newsrooms better and help our journalists survive and thrive then I want to do that and that will also aid my healing someone spoke to me about I remember about maybe two years after that happened about post-traumatic growth I was yes. in the throes of PTSD at that time. And I thought there's, because uh, he said to me, I remember, I can see the shoots of post-traumatic growth with you. And I thought, no, you can't, mate. No, you absolutely, I, I, there's nothing grow with me at the moment. Yeah. It's all kind of, you know, there's, it's it's all still very consuming. And I could very, very rarely see the positive side of life. Mm-hmm. But he said, no, I, I can see, I can see some of those things happen. And it was because I was talking about the book and I wanted to make things better for other people. And I wanted to share stories and get other people to talk. But I just thought that's helping me. And I didn't mm-hmm. realize it would be helping other people as well. It was so, yeah, and so the post-traumatic growth, I can definitely see that now. I can definitely see that in myself now. And I've emerged from this nightmare, I suppose, a stronger person and someone who will never have their voice taken away again by by, by people or broken down by people. And I'm going to fight other people's corner as well. And I, even if they don't want me to fight their corner because people keep saying, like, you know, you keep going on about mental health and newsrooms and you're going to create snowflakes and stuff. And I think, I don't care what, what you say. Yeah. Perhaps you're not in a good in a place yourself to kind of recognize that it's quite a dysfunctional environment but I'm going to I'm going to just play on here myself and and make it better it's because you understand it it's because you know what trauma is and 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 we all know what trauma is to a certain extent but your understanding goes to that deeper level you have an experience with your years of experience as a journalist to know what's happening within the culture of it and now as the course director for undergraduates for university how has your perception changed of trauma over like the last four years? So like that, as you say, post-traumatic growth, but from start of not wanting to stop to now, actually, I have fuel to make a difference. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm responsible for a lot of students. I'm responsible. They look to me for guidance. They look to me for, they look at what I'm doing. And I suppose with regards trauma, and I know the environment that those folks are going into, and it can be tough. And some of the stories they're, they're going to recover will be tough. And the support perhaps will not be there because they're going into sort of places of work that I perhaps worked in myself. So I know that I have to make things better for them, but I know as well that they're looking at me about how I behave. And if I was, if I hid the fact that I struggled with something, that I wasn't human and that something traumatic happened and it didn't affect me at all, I'm absolutely fine, then they would feel fear about maybe saying something impacted on me or something landed on me or whatever. So I have to be very careful about how I behave. And I, I say to them in classes, we do classes on resilience I said to them, I, I had terrible anxiety, awful anxiety, I had panic attacks, I had insomnia. And they look at me as this person who, well, I hope they do anyway, <laughs> and has it all together, that comes to class and is, you know, does their class. And and I'm a professional person, I'm the head of the department, and I've got it, I've you know, I've got it mostly together. But also on the side, I also have, you know, there, there's, there's a the human piece. Yeah, there's a human element there. And I've also got sometimes my anxiety, anxiety flares up and while I'm, you know, still teaching and whatnot, or sometimes things trigger me or sometimes when there's things happen in the court case and it really just, oh, just like sort of winds me back. Sometimes I have an insomnia, I come into class and I'm yawning a bit or whatever. It's, I, I want them to know that, that, don't let people dehumanize journalists. Don't let people disregard journalists. You're just as worthy of sympathy and care and support as any other profession, any other person. We're in this era of still the Trump era of journalists are the enemy of the people or fake news or liars, all that type of thing on social media. I don't want my journalists to think that they, 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 they're, like, they're like that. They believe that narrative. Mm. They, they need to know if they're traumatized by something, there needs to be some help there. And that's what I want to do. I want to put that help in place. I want to put a tribe in place also that they feel that it's perfectly normal and perfectly normal and okay to talk about how things impact on you. I don't want them going into an environment where there's a lot of old school journalists there saying that, no, if you if you can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen yeah, or... Yeah stop creating snowflakes or you're a snowflake go and do something else if you can't handle this because that's what people that's what people have said to me and that's what yeah. people will say to young journalists as I well I can hear it being said you know it's it's yeah. not beyond the realms at all so what steps can new newsrooms take so anybody that's in a position you know how can they support the mental health of their reporters some of them do at the moment and they they have mental health first aiders there. The problem with that is is that it's still in the newsroom environment and people are fearful of going to those, you know, people within the news organization because they think it might be fed back to their editor or they just don't trust it. That's the feedback I'm getting from people. So there needs to be something outside of outside of the newsroom that people can go into confidentially. And I think the most important thing is that people know that there's support there, that people even if it's not used, that people, the newsrooms have, okay, there's this, if, if there's a critical incident, like for example, a few months back, there was that awful incident in Donegal where the gas mm, explosion yes. happened. So a lot of our our folks would have went down to that and covered that. And it was a, it was a hugely traumatic incident. And they were there for 10 days covering it. And that was really, really consuming. And there were sometimes there were two funerals a day. And it was just, it was really horrific for the people who are there in the village, obviously, as well, but also horrific for the journalists who were covering it. And some of the people went back to their workplace and they don't even so much as get an email to ask if they were okay. Sometimes that's the only thing that, that would help. It's the I see you piece. Yeah. You know, you did something really hard today. I see you doing your yeah. job. Well done. But that must have been so hard. Yeah. They don't, they didn't, you know, a lot of them that I spoke to didn't, didn't get that. They didn't get an email. They didn't get, they didn't even get sort of, you know, if you need any help, then, you know, I'll point you in the direction of something. A lot of them, a lot of them didn't. Perhaps some newsrooms did, but a lot of the people that I spoke to didn't have that. So it's just, it's, just, it's simple things like that, but also being trauma aware. You know, we're sending our journalists into these environments heroin stories court cases and murder cases and all those type of things and we expect them to come out completely unscathed and just get on to the next story 
you know, there needs to be some processes there that people can go to somewhere, someone within the newsroom or with outside the newsroom and talk to them, process that stuff, debrief like the, the, the way they do in, you know, ambulance service and, and stuff like that. Obviously, we're not dealing with, you know, car crashes and, and trying to help people stay alive and stuff like that. But we're dealing with the second line that are going on there and dealing with the emotional stuff and the grief and the trauma and the anguish and the hate and the vitriol. No hierarchy to trauma as well, by the no, way. I Just, don't. You know, even that piece, we're not seeing it as much as maybe first responders. You know, a, a thing that affects me or you will not affect, you know, five other people. And a thing that affects them will not affect us. Whatever it is, it is. That's that's the part of trauma. It doesn't discriminate. It doesn't care what your job is. It doesn't care what your title or your age or your gender, any of that. Yeah. And if you if you witness something hard as a human, you will feel it. And sometimes we never know what what the event or the experience is going to be that stays with us. It's okay that it does. It's, yeah. it's such a there is this such a belief of you know and, and I think you said it earlier as well you know I, I think I said you're part of the story as well it's your story as well and I said well at least I'm part of it you're removing yourself from it it's such an experience for you yeah no this is true and that comes again that that sort of we're not as bad as them that comes from disregard yeah. of ourselves as journalists and we are really good at that. We are really good at disregarding, you know, and, and that has been said to me while I put, was putting out this book about people being traumatized by things. You know, well, it's not as if you're an ambulance driver. It's not as if you're a fireman or whatever yeah, fire officer. Or a, it's not as if, and it's kind of like we're totally disregarded. And it's yeah. uh, that's that's a thing that we need to stop doing in newsrooms. We need, to, we need the newsrooms to be trauma aware from the top down bosses need to mm-hmm. put in place measures to support journalists and they would be fearful of that because it'll take journalists off jobs or you know there's a it's very fast paced in newsrooms things have mm-hmm. to be turned around very quickly so perhaps there's no time to mm-hmm. deal with those type of things but then that damages our, our journalists and then they go off yeah. on the sick or they they burn out or whatever but also from the bottom up journalists need to also realize that the stuff that they're dealing with can be damaging and maybe they don't realize it they don't realize maybe their you know their anxiety or their tendency to drink two bottles of wine a night or their Mm -hmm. addiction to prescription drugs or things like that are trauma responses they don't realize perhaps that so it's not educating because that sounds patronizing but it's kind of letting them know that this this stuff can impact you and here's how we deal with it so i'm developing alongside two clinical psychologists as well a newsroom program that will take in all of all of that and kind of do some training with them and then put in place almost like a triage system if something big happens then you go to this person and it's very well signposted because i remember at the time when i was having difficulties i had to go and search on the internet for someone who could help and I put out calls on Twitter. Nobody, you know, knew who could help or, or there just wasn't anybody but available. While I was on my darkest hour, I was going, who can help me with this? I think And I'm you're going. not thinking there. You're not no. running on all cylinders to be able you're to, not, no. you know, check all of these things out and know what is the right thing for you. So having that signposting would be amazing. Yeah, so signposting two two things, but also just the the rhetoric that we use as well, and and the the narrative of I don't know. I just think that sometimes editors need to speak to their journalists. Are are, are you okay? That was a tough story, you know. Do you need do you need to chat? Do you want a cup of coffee? I mean, it's sometimes as simple as that. Instead of right, you did the story right. Go go and do another one. There's another traumatic story for you to kind of rub away at your soul with. You know, it's. Sometimes it's just that, but it's it's a whole process. But changing the mindset, firstly, of the newsroom is important. And, you know, I'm getting a lot of pushback about that because historically this is the way newsrooms have been forever. That does not mean that they're, they're right. They're yeah. still really dysfunctional places. And just because they've always been dysfunctional places doesn't mean that they need to keep being dysfunctional places because that's how it works. We need to change the mindset that we're superhuman. Nothing can impact us. And if it does impact on us, you're weak, go and do another job. Is that getting worse in the digital age where, you know, story after story just comes in? You know, there is no like the 24 hour news cycle just doesn't exist. It's just constant now. Do you know what I mean? It's just story yeah. after story. It breaks no matter what. So you go on Twitter at 2 a.m. and there's another story breaking. Like what you're talking about there is that vicarious trauma. Vicarious trauma is that witnessing trauma after trauma, witnessing others' pain. It, it does have an effect. 
you know it, yeah. it lands it's it's a real thing so what do you think is the impact of the digital media age journalists and readers because like us as readers are also taking in some of this it can maybe triggering some of our own trauma that we may not realize this is true. Digital journalism, 24-hour certain cycle of news now, and it's just one thing after the other, after the other. It has to be the biggest news that gets the biggest hits and and uh, it's pulling people in, pulling the public in as well. It's relentless. It's a relentless, grim conveyor belt of doom at times. And the digital age has made that even worse because when you think about, like, when I first started out, we had, I don't think the internet was even invented. That's how old I am. But when you think about it, so you would build up the paper. I worked on a weekly paper. You build up the paper and it went out on a Thursday and that was it. And then you maybe have a couple of quiet days and you build it up again. Now, a story's old five minutes after it's gone online and you're seeking out the next one. You're going out to stories. Perhaps something has happened. So you're trying to seek out sources. You're trying to seek out eyewitnesses nonstop. You're shooting videos. You're shooting photographs. You're constantly... And you're doing it now, aren't you? There's not a team that goes with you. So like the the invention of the iPhone, you're now editor on the run and cameraman and all of that sort of stuff. You're, You're doing it all now. Yeah, you're doing it all. You're a multi-platform journalist. Yeah. yeah, and that's expected of you. So you're going to do something often alone. Perhaps you're covering a rally, which is maybe there. There's maybe it's an anti-vaccine rally or something like that, and they're hostile towards journalists. And you're out there by yourself, but you know, dealing with something maybe that's a hostile environment is quite traumatic. Yeah, so you're you're on your own. It's you know, it's and then you're always you're needing to be first. So as well as all the different sort of trauma that you're dealing with there, you're the emphasis on being first with the story. So you your pressure is to get the most up to date information and get it out there very quickly. So there's so many new pressures on journalists these days that weren't when I was kind of, you know, when I was just starting out. And as well as that, there's another dimension of the online abuse. You know, you're doing stories perhaps that are covering controversial subjects. You put it online. The emphasis in newsrooms is to share that story as many times from your own digital platforms as well. That brings in a whole host of crazy people who will say anything and tell you know and, and say everything about you and criticize you and and disregard you and kind of try and bring in the disrepute and stuff like that it's just an absolute minefield so that brings a whole new dimension to it as well and I, yeah and now i'm thinking you know as as teaching the next generation what's the biggest challenge you're facing right now yeah, I suppose. Oh, there's a whole lot of different challenges, I suppose, when you're teaching them the next generation to go into the field, but just preparing them for it because it's it's an environment like no other. It really, really is. And I think the online abuse is a, is a really big thing that you have to sort of prepare them for. I don't think that they, they realize that, you know, for, for example, if you're working in Northern Ireland and you go out and you cover an orange march on any given July day, you'll get a, a whole tsunami of abuse about that and you'll be called all the names under the sun. And the next week you'll be out covering perhaps a dissident Republican rally and they'll, all the people from the people who don't like that side of things will be on criticising you and saying that you're promoting this and you're promoting that. And it's a, it's a side that a lot of people take take a while to get used to take a while to harden up to and it shouldn't you shouldn't have to toughen up to those type of things, but you do. And I think that's one of the... The hostility and the harassment is one of the biggest things. Like put aside, you know, the stuff that you have to learn, the media law, the shorthand, the public affairs, the knowing everything about every single subject, the finding your sources, the, the you know, navigating the the deadlines in your newsroom and the fast pace and getting stuff out there, all of that stuff, dealing with traumatic stories, dealing Gosh, with the, the adrenaline of all of that. The adrenaline, surviving on coffee, just all yeah. that type of stuff that doesn't it's 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 not fantastic for regulating the nervous system. system. No. Yeah. And then you also have this online kind of thing that's that's it's an added it's an added dimension of stress just and I think that's one of the hardest things that they, they'll take to get used to. It's probably still something that's been figured out because while I'm not in that field, just reading about reading about it and hearing about it, it's evolving to yeah. like this doxing stuff, which I'm only still getting my head around. And I'm sure you've actually probably experienced that. But the, the ways of getting at a person is evolving. 
and yeah. this is evolving on the online platforms you know as well so yeah it absolutely it's a it's a whole new world i suppose the the online but uh you know I, i've never doxing i suppose it's more of a, an american thing and i do know people who that has happened to where they're they find out people's addresses and stuff and yeah it's not it's not well i mean i suppose that has happened to, to me and to other people as well it's and people can get information from me online. I, I don't, and I've told my students this as well. I don't put any photographs of my kids online. I don't put photographs of where I'm at online. If I'm, you know, where you, whenever you're an ordinary citizen and you go out to a restaurant or whatever and you maybe share a picture of your dinner and you post wherever you're, you're at, I wouldn't do that because you don't know whose who's yeah. favor you're not in this week for because of a story that you've written or who means you harm, or who hates journalists, or who's nearby that, you know, that's maybe written a court story about sometime and they don't like it. Or So I, I would always make sure that from the get-go, from when they're in, journal, in journalism school with me, that they're conscious of their safety the entire way through, not only their physical safety, but their, their mental well-being as well. But yeah, it's 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 tough going, and it's a whole... Uh, keyboard warriors are just... Mm. They give journalists such a hard time, particularly female journalists. They seem to attack female journalists more than male counterparts, and I've been at the, at the rough end of that a couple of times. I remember one, one time... It's not doxing, but I remember during that whole Lear McKee conspiracy theory thing, someone posted a photograph of me. Someone sent me a photograph of myself in a coffee shop by myself to tell me how close he was able to get to me. And I thought that's, you know, I was sitting with my back down when he took a picture from behind. And and that really, that's frightening. My yeah. friend of mine, Trish Devlin, she was sent a horrible message to say that she went to her grandmother's house. She had just had a baby. She just had a baby boy. Yes. She went to her grandmother's house that they would they would rape the baby. You know, it's it's horrible, that type of, that level of abuse. That you don't even think, you know, I know that I say things to my students and they think that's not going to happen to me. Mm. But sometimes it, it can. These are very real things. It's a very real thing. And so I try and prepare them for that. And it's probably one of the 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 nastier sides of, of the job in this modern era. What are the good sides? <laughs> because it sounds there's a lot of adrenaline, a lot of, a lot of disruption to the nervous system. Yeah. But you've written some great stories and shed some light on, on issues that maybe would not have been heard about. So there's that side of it too. There's an there altruistic, is. I think, side of it. Is that yeah. would that be fair? There, there's a really good side to journalism. It's a brilliant job. I mean, it makes you feel so alive when you're doing it. It's, it's fantastic, and most of most of the job is very positive. You know, I've done I've done stories with people who perhaps were trying to raise money for a child who needed treatment in Germany or whatever, and I've written the story, and they needed thirty thousand pound, and they've raised it within half an hour of the story going on, and they, that's helped that child. Or, or I've done stories. You can really make a difference as a journalist. I've done stories about you know people needing cancer drugs that were available in England weren't available here, put pressure on the government and the drugs available here, which prolonged people's lives. You know, all all that type of thing. You shine a light in dark places. You can give a voice to the voiceless you can really make a difference in your city and your community and your country and in the world with journalism as well you can hold people to account you can hold people in power to account it's all good also you get talking to politicians and presidents and pop stars and and the places you go to is not you know you get to go everywhere i don't think i've ever I don't think I've ever bought a ticket for a concert. I always got press, press passes or you get go to into witness. it for the press pass. <laughs> <laughs> you can get to witness history unfold before your very eyes. Yeah. Not many people get to do that. It's a really special, interesting, vibrant, lively, exciting job that is like no other. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to continue like that. I wanted I want our journalists to be able to survive and thrive in this environment and yeah. not burn out with the, the stuff that maybe tags yeah. along at the end is not so great. I would like them to be enjoy it and, and really love this job. It sounds like you're trying to safeguard it rather yeah. than, you know, this journey, yeah. as you say, the, this, you're just making them into snowflakes. You're actually safeguarding what you yeah. want. Yeah, 100%. Definitely. That's what I, that's what I want to do. I don't want people to burn out. And I know people that have alcohol problems and drug problems. I know people have taken their own lives. I know people who have really bad mental health. I know people who have had breakdowns. It doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't, yeah. it only takes a wee bit of support. And when people are, you know, 
you can't wear people down with with stuff and just sit back and just say it was always like us in the newsroom and if you're not tough you can, and you can't stick it out then go somewhere else you can't you can't be like that that's you know it's a really really good good job and and there are some fantastic journalists that we just need to keep going and keep supporting and keep because they're the ones that are going to shine the light in those dark places some of those people yeah. that maybe are, are have burnt out you don't know what they would have done we need those people we need journalism we need we need journalism to society going honest. yeah <laughs> honest, exactly yeah so tell me then, so any journalist that's listening, and I think anybody that's listening, so having listened to your story, what you've gone through and what we've just highlighted here today and the effects of trauma, they may might be recognising themselves in this. And what steps can they take to reach out to for help and support? So I suppose one in the journalist's point of view, where could they go? What resources or advice could you give them? Yeah, well, we'll have our program hopefully ready by May. But in the meantime, there are some really fantastic journalists who are doing amazing things out there. Hannah Storm, if you follow her on on Twitter, she is part of Headliners Network. And they do some fantastic stuff about journalism and trauma and just everyday kind of newsroom stuff that will help you. Even so much as it's not just journalists, it's all media workers. Sometimes people are are maybe filtering, particularly the war in Ukraine there, for example, they're filtering the pictures and the stories that are coming through yes. from those war zones. And they're not journalists themselves. They're just they're working in digital, perhaps. And they're been traumatized by some of that. It's and they have on Headliners Network. They have really helpful tips about how to deal with that sort of taking time away, turning the do volume. Do they have a podcast? They do. Yeah, I yeah, I think I, yeah. yeah, I think I might listen yeah. to that podcast with you. There, so I'll put the, pretty, the links in. Yeah, if you could, yeah, that'd be fantastic. So they they talk nonstop about journalism and mental health. And Hannah really helped me. She gave me a lot of courage to speak about my own stuff. She had me on on the podcast a couple of years back as well. And um, it's really helpful to hear other people, people like Clive Myrie and uh, other really well-known journalists talking about how things have impacted on them. I think that's so important to hear that voice. I hear that well-known voice that you'll see on, on the 10 o'clock news, you know, that night after you've listened to him talking about how, you know, some of the things he saw in Ukraine really had a deep impact on him. Mm. And humanizing journalists, that's really, that's really, really important for all those. So I would definitely point people in the direction of Headliners Network. They're doing such amazing work. And Hannah is just fantastic. She's a really, she had PTSD herself and she's a reporter for a long time. So just hearing voices like that, help people to understand that they're not on their own they're not because it's newsroom can be quite isolating I suppose at times when you think that story really impacted on me but I don't want to tell anybody else because they might think badly or they might think I'm weak or they might whatever but hearing other big voices talk about it and you know what gives people a wee bit of a notion that they're not by themselves they're not on their own they're they're not going crazy they're just a human being responding to something which is very traumatic yeah so, okay, so the journalists that, that are going through now, I imagine they're maybe 18, 19 years of age. If you yeah. could go back and give yourself, your 18-year-old self, one piece of advice going into this, what would it be? Oh, jeepers. That's a tough one. Go be a doctor instead. I'm only joking. <laughs> <coughs> no, I'm... just straight, stay true to yourself. Just stay true to yourself and you'll, you, you'll not go wrong because that's what I always did. Try and help. Do no harm. That's probably the best advice if you only want a couple of words. Do no harm. Just treat everybody in the same, in the same way whenever you're doing this job and try your best. Just, just keep at it. Yeah. And if you need help, get help. Reach out. Well. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So for those looking to learn more about what we're talking today, do you have any recommendations, books or podcasts where well, we talked about your book, there's Breaking Trauma in the News here and yeah. podcast, headliners, anything headliners, else? Yeah, I would direct them towards those those two things. There's a lot of a lot of people that are starting to talk about about this topic now. But breaking trauma in the newsroom is a good start. That's kind of held my homework here. And headliner headliners are just fantastic. The work that they do, they have so many resources on there. They've got videos that are kind of explaining vicarious trauma and how it how it impacts you. Also, how do you recognize the signs of anxiety or trauma in yourself? Even so much as kind of 
when you're listening to something or you're doing something on with regards to news and your palms are sweating and your heart's racing a wee bit or your your breathing is different and stuff like that, people will recognize some of those symptoms in themselves whenever they're actually on the job and they might they might not they might not know what they are. So yeah, definitely headliners will be a will be a big one and I would point point people towards headlines right. network. Headlines network. Headline. Network, okay. I'll add that in. So then our this podcast will go out on the twenty-fourth, and I believe on the twenty-fifth you have a TED talk. I do. I have a TED talk in Stormont, which is going to mark the twenty-fifth anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. And so I'm going to be talking about my own experience there, which if you had asked me six months ago, would I stand up in front of an audience and talk about it? I would have it would have terrified me, but as I say, CBT has done some magic voodoo, woo-woo, whatever, and work wonders. And I've got my courage back. And hopefully I'll be able to get through that without getting upset. But I'm talking about my experiences and how kind of what happened to me has really fueled this desire to make things different, to make the newsroom different for other people, for other journalists coming through and for journalists that are there now at the moment. And just I'm talking about sort of how macho the newsroom is and how kind of, as I said, dysfunctional it is, it can be, and how journalists are expected to just get on with things and not be, you know, not struggle with anything, not be hurt by anything, not be impacted by, by anything. And, and how I wanted to shine a light on that, shine a light on journalists. We're used to, I suppose, telling other people's stories and we're a wee bit, it's a bit more difficult to tell our stories but my my talk is called first what's it called i can't remember what it's called <laughs> that's all right i'll oh, put everything yeah. in the show notes for for anyone that wants to watch it can they watch it afterwards is there yeah i think it's going to be online afterwards yeah okay yeah. so broken places, um, where, broken places is where the light shines through that's what i call it how do you how do you oh remember? very good broken like places are where the light shines through so yeah it'll be on it'll be online and it'll be on the ted talk website youtube channel and stuff like yeah. that so yeah it'll be good it'll be good the because i just sometimes don't think that people as you said when you read the book i didn't get it i didn't yeah. get it i just didn't think of it of course it yeah. made sense when i was reading it i was like of course of course you would but i just didn't see it People don't. People don't. And I suppose that's that's part of it as well, sort of trying to make people understand that journalists are human beings. They're not there for people to abuse online or harass in the street or they're not liars or cheats or whatever else that the people the brand they're the branded by. They're they're trying to do a good they're trying to do a good job. They're trying to kind of tell stories and, and, and do their job well. Yeah. Okay, so what can people expect next from you? I have a, I have, I know that you're writing another book. I'm writing, I've written another book and I've oh, just written it. Oh, well second, well, they're, they're not, they're not a non-fiction, they're fiction books. So the next book that I have coming out is coming out next year. It's a work of fiction. It's called Perdition Street. And it's about a Dublin private detective who binds the souls of the murdered to their murderers. And I wrote that lockdown in the, in the midst of PTSD and I suppose it helped me exercise a lot of demons because I, whenever I was working as a journalist, I wrote a lot of stories about legacy cases, about people who had been murdered during the Troubles and my own experience as well. And people not getting, not being held accountable for those, for those kind of murders. And I have this guy rocking around Dublin and other places, binding the souls of the murder to those who took their lives and dragging them to hell so it's it sounds really grim and, and sort of dark and but it's not it's actually quite funny it's you know he's a I, I give him a lot of my traits he's got anxiety issues and he has panic attacks and, and whatnot and so yeah he's a really fun character so he has to end up he has to end up saving the world as well mm -hmm. so yeah so I that's coming out in next year I can't remember what date it is next year but it's 2024 anyway and then the other one I just finished writing there is another fiction work it's about it is called the apocalypse is scheduled for sunday and it's about covenant witches just outside dublin they're a family the moriarty's and the sisters in the family are related to the the morrigan the, the goddess of war death and destruction they don't know that there's a lot of family secrets there they're elemental witches so they kind of take their power from the elements okay. they also have to save the world so there's a lot oh. of saving the world kind of going on here in the, in the background I'm, maybe that's what i want to do i'm hitting a theme here yeah 
Take it in the theme, yeah. Maybe that's maybe that's what's next. Saving the world, Clodagh. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> I've no doubt you will. I've no doubt you will. Okay, so uh, Leona, thanks so much for anyone that wants to keep up with you and to keep up with the books coming out and catch up with the talk. Where can they find you? Where is best to catch you? Yeah, I'm on. I'm on Twitter normally. I'm Leona O'Neill One on there. So O'Neill with two L's. O N E I W L One, the number one, the numeral one. I'm on Instagram, Leon O'Neill Ireland, so you can get me on there as well. And Facebook is just pictures of my dinner and, and my dog, so it's, nobody wants to look at that. I'll add the links for Twitter and Instagram, and yeah. anyone that wants Twitter. to follow can catch up with you there. Thank Great. you so much. That was that was really enlightening, and I think a lot of people will get a lot out of that, and probably like me have their eyes opened into the world of journalism and what you have to do to report the news. So, yeah. And I can't wait to see what you do with this program. Um, I think it's going to be really beneficial to um, journalists, but also to the next generation coming in. So well done. Thank you very much. Thank you, Clona. Thanks for talking to me. All right. All right.